I'm going to invite you to find Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin the book of Jonah next Sunday together. Today we're in Acts 17. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that I'm here. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit is here. I'm relieved that the Holy Spirit is here to support and give power to this endeavor, which is planned for the purpose of giving glory to Jesus Christ. I'm going to read, beginning in verse 22 of Acts 17, through the end of the chapter. The speaker is the Apostle Paul. The location is Athens, Greece. The date is about 52 AD, and the subject is God. Let's stand, shall we? Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Amen. Please be seated.
Preaching begins with the identification of problems. Preaching begins with the identification of problems. A preacher is not so much a scholar as he is a physician. A physician for the soul. Today, a preacher must be an entertainer or a comedian. Or if he can't be those things, he at least has to be a storyteller or a dynamic communicator. If there's one thing that he must not be, it's a physician. Someone who declares to you what your problem is and announces the remedy for that problem. When Paul opens his mouth and begins to address this gathering of sophisticated humans... He begins with their problems, and they have two. They have two identifiable problems. Their first problem is ignorance. We see that both in verse 23 and verse 30. What are they ignorant of? They're ignorant as to the identity of the one true God, what he's like, what he requires. They're ignorant by their own admission. They have an altar in town with the inscription, To the unknown God. To the God who might be out there, whom we don't know about. We are creating this altar to you because we don't want to perhaps offend you by not having anything for you, O God, that we do not know about. See, they're trying to cover their bases, aren't they? Make sure that no God is offended. And what they don't know is that this unknown God who they are attempting to pacify and to worship is not satisfied with that altar. It's not what he has required. They don't know that. Therefore, a preacher is there to tell them to help them with their ignorance of who God is and what he requires. That's one problem. They're ignorant. It's illustrated in verse 23, mentioned specifically by name in verse 30, Paul making reference to the times of ignorance. Their second problem is idolatry. It's mentioned in in verse 16, and we see it in verse 29. Their second problem is idolatry. They're worshiping the wrong things. We see that made very clear back in verse 16, which we didn't read. But if we go back up to verse 16, we read that while Paul was waiting for them, for his companions, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. We see that pointed out to us also in verse 29. Paul pointing out to them that the divine being is not like gold or silver or stone. He's not an image that's formed by the art and the imagination 
of man. He's describing their idols. Paul admits up front as he begins to speak that he knows he's talking to a very religious people. He's talking to a people who are devoted to worship. It's just that they're worshiping things that are unworthy of worship and neglecting to worship the only one who is worthy. Those are their twin problems, ignorance and idolatry. Ignorance, they don't know who the true God is. Idolatry, they're worshiping the wrong things. And so we might ask the question, well, do we have the same problems? Can we at all identify with with these people? Two thousand years after Paul preached this sermon, do we as a people also suffer from ignorance and idolatry? Are you in particular suffering from ignorance as to who the one true God really is and what he requires? And are you suffering from idolatry? Are you worshiping the wrong things? All right, let's get the hard one out of the way first. talk about idolatry. Is there any evidence that we as a people worship the wrong things? Before I'm hard on you, I'm going to be hard on myself. Last Saturday evening, a prominent pastor and writer, and some of you would know his name if I mentioned it. He's got a Twitter account, and he fired off a a tweet at about 1130 at night, probably after turning off ESPN. College football is idolatry. Get out your Bibles instead. End of tweet. I thought, so I read the tweet, thought about responding to him. I didn't respond to him over Twitter. I responded to him in my head. (laughs) And I'll tell you what went through my head and what my response to him was. College football is idolatry. Well, maybe. For people like me, it is. I love college football. I love the drama. I love the smell. I love the the weather. And most of all, I love my team. And I really love my team today. You know, for people like me, it is. It's been an idol for me for way too long. I... He's exactly right. I'm inclined toward idolatry in that area. I'm guilty. But it's not an idol for everybody. It's not an idol for everybody that watches it. What if that's your gift? What if God's gifted you to play football really well, like he gifted Eric Little to run so fast, and like he gifted Sarah Groves to sing so well? What if that's your fulfillment of God's gift for you and your avenue for building the kingdom? 
What if that's what your son does? What if that, that's what your son has been gifted to do and you get so much joy out of watching him? See, it need not be an idol. And I think that's what irked me about his comment is that it was put in such universal terms. But let me just say this. It hits home for those of us for whom it needs to hit home. I'm guilty of giving undue attention and time and concern to something that's unworthy of all those things, to something that's not God. Maybe it's something different for you. Okay, I've opened up my heart a little bit. You open up yours a little bit. What is it for you? Someone was describing to me recently um, a house that they were a guest in. Said, I went into this house of an acquaintance and it was room by room by room covered from floor to ceiling with material and merchandise from this one particular movie franchise. Okay, I'm not going to name the movie franchise. You can probably guess what it is or come real close. Every room, not just the kitchen, every room, floor to ceiling, same movie franchise. Now, is that reflective of of what's going on in the homeowner's heart? Maybe not. But maybe. There's a little town in northern Mississippi called Holly Springs. It's real close to Tupelo. And there's a man who lives there who turned his private residence into a shrine for Tupelo's most famous son. Tupelo's most famous son that went on to become Memphis' most famous son. And for $5, up until seven years ago, it's closed now, but for $5, you could go in and look at all of his memorabilia from that singer. And people came from all over the place to pay their $5 to look at the amount of material he had, what he had accumulated as a shrine to that singer. Now, is that reflective of what's going on in his heart? Maybe. Whether or not it is, even if it's not, it's still a great picture of the human condition because that's what we all do. We all build these shrines. Your example may not be as public or maybe as embarrassing as the ones that I mentioned, but we all build our shrines. That's what we do. What are you building your shrine to? In your home or in your heart? We're not even ashamed to call them idols anymore. We label our TV shows by that name. All right, that's idolatry. What about ignorance? We may not think that ignorance is as big a problem for us these days. After all, how could we be ignorant of the one true God when we have all of this material, all of these books, all of these great online resources, sermons, Bible studies, 
conferences to go to, all these things, how could we possibly be ignorant as to who the one true God is? That, that surely can't be our problem. And, you know, yeah, we're not lacking information. But there is such a thing as willful ignorance. There is such a thing as having revelation, yet refusing to engage the revelation or enjoy the revelation or give attention to the revelation and instead turning our backs on it to pursue other things. That's Romans 1. That although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him and remember the result. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, these twin problems, idolatry and ignorance, feed each other. Ignorance can lead to idolatry. Yes, if we don't know about the true God, we probably will end up worshiping other things. Ignorance can lead to idolatry, but idolatry also leads to ignorance. That's the message of Romans 1, that even if we do know the true God, if we do not honor him and do not give thanks to him, that is, make a right response to him, he will give us over to a futile, darkened mind. He will give us over to ignorance, futility, and darkness. And so these two problems feed each other. And the idolatrous become ignorant of God, just as surely as the ignorant of God become idolatrous. So yeah, we share in their problems. How could we as a people still suffer from these same problems 2,000 years later? How is that possible? Well, I think there's probably more than one answer. I think the human condition, human nature is part of the answer. Divine judgment is probably part of the answer. But lay the greatest part of the blame at my feet. For the fact that 2,000 years later, people in the world are still suffering from ignorance and idolatry. And in our country, 2,000 years later, people are still suffering from ignorance and idolatry. First and foremost, lay the blame upon the pulpit, on me, on people that do what I do for a living. The, the more that I read, the more that I'm convinced that no human ever wrote as well as Herman Melville. Just my opinion. And he wrote a book about a, a famous whale and a famous ship and a famous voyage and an infamous captain. But at the very beginning of that book, before the ship even leaves the port... To go out looking for that whale. At the very beginning of the book, there's a chapter called The Pulpit. It's right after the chapter called The Preacher. 
And in that chapter called the pulpit, he's describing this, the physical appearance of a certain pulpit in a certain chapel in a certain port town. And he, he's sitting in a worship service and he's listening to a sermon and he decides to take a whole chapter to describe just the pulpit. Maybe when you were younger, you sat in a worship service and you just decided to draw a picture of the pulpit. Maybe some of you are doing that right now, but he describes the pulpit. And he said that the appearance of this pulpit that he was looking at was like the bow of a ship. That's how it was crafted. It was crafted to look like the front of a ship. And when the preacher was standing in the pulpit, it looked like he was standing at the front of a ship headed out into the ocean. And Melville writes about what an appropriate visual that is to represent the whole nature of a pulpit. And this is what he writes. The pulpit is ever this, this earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in the rear. The pulpit leads the world. That's the end of the quote. And I think he's more right than wrong. The pulpit does lead the world, either for the better or for the worse. What is presented from the pulpit as truth about God and what he requires will either bring the light of the gospel to the world. Or, if that gospel is concealed and treated as unimportant or irrelevant or outdated or offensive, it will plunge the world into further darkness. And where is light for this world and where is safe passage for anyone if the light of the gospel is absent from the pulpit? And we preachers have been more interested in telling people how to be successful than how to be saved. And we preachers, me, I, I have been more concerned and more impressed with myself than impressed with God. And we preachers to our great shame, have been more concerned about gaining followers for ourselves than followers of Jesus. And we preachers, to our great shame, have worshipped other things and led the way into idolatry in a willful ignorance of the deep things of God And what is needed from the pulpit at this hour is a simple declaration of Paul's message from Acts 17. He's got three points. This is the first point. God is not in your hands. You are in his. That's the first point of his message. 
God is not in your hands. You are in his hands. You're not in control at all. And he labors to make that point to them and to us. And it's fascinating to see how he makes that point about control. He points, points out two things to them. The first thing he shows them is that we don't form God. God formed us. They think that they form God. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Don't think, man, that you form God. Don't you know that God is the one who formed us? That's what is noted in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's the one that has formed and created. He created man, not the other way around. Man doesn't form God. God made from one man every nation of mankind. The first thing he points out is that we don't form God. He formed us. The second thing he points out is that we don't make a place for God to live. He has made a place for us to live. Verse 24, God does not live in temples made by man. We don't give God a home. No, not at all. Just the opposite. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. See, God has made a place for us to live. It's just the opposite of what they think. They don't make a home for God. God has made a home for man. Paul is flipping upside down everything that they believe about themselves and believe about God. God is not in their control. He is under, they are under his control. And I want to say humbly but directly to you that God is not in your hands. You are in his hands. God is not in your hands that you should presume to decide what he is like or what he would do and not do if he is good. You do not get to decide what he requires of a person or the manner in which he will save or the number of people that he should save, and you don't get to declare whether he exists or not. And if he's acted justly or not. We like to decide and declare 
things about God and say, this is what God is like. As if that's our right or our position. And it is not. God decides and declares things about us. He is the giver of breath. Verse 25. And he is the taker of breath. How much control did you have over coming into this world? You have no more control today than you did on the day you came into this world. We are still completely in his hands, and he is not in ours at all. That's the first point of the message. That's the first thing that we have to know about God is this matter of control. God is in control. That's what it means to be God. His first point is God is not in your hands. You are in his. His second point is that God has fixed a day to judge you. That's verse 31. God has fixed a day to judge you. God is not in your hands. You are in his. Secondly, God has fixed a day to judge you. When will that day be? We don't know. Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't know. He just declares that there is a fixed day. Acts 17.31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Including you. Do you believe it? I think it's worthwhile to consider the folly of the scene that's unfolding before us here. If you just step back and think about what's going on, it's pretty incredible. An untrained speaker is talking about an unknown God who will judge on an unknown day by an unnamed man. There seems to be a lot of missing information. It's really breathtaking to notice what's not in Paul's gospel message. Did you notice what's not here? No mention of the name Jesus. No mention of the cross. No mention of the word sin or the word forgiveness or grace or eternal life or hell. All of those things that we take for granted as part of a standard gospel presentation, none of those things are here. But notice what is here. What are we told about this judgment that's going to happen when God, on this fixed day, which is on the calendar and known only to him, what are we told about what that will be like? What is here? 
First of all, the judgment will be in righteousness. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Meaning what? Meaning by his own righteous standard. Which is himself. God will judge you and me by his own righteous standard, which is himself. That means, here's what that means. Anyone who does not uphold the glory of God to the same degree as God upholds the glory of God fails. Anyone who is less righteous than God fails the judgment. This is the idea that Romans 3.23 puts more explicitly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one meets his righteous standard, which is himself. Obviously, that's a problem. That's a huge problem, knowing that a day has been fixed for judgment and that the standard by which we will be judged on that day is whether we are as righteous as God. What are you going to do? Keep reading and notice this second thing about the judgment. Judgment will be by a man whom he has appointed. He, will, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He's an unnamed man. All we know is that God has raised him from the dead. That's what we learn at the end of verse 31. This is a man whom God raised from the dead. The point of Paul's message is to bring his listeners under the condemnation of their problems. To reveal their helplessness in the hands of God and their hopelessness of meeting his standard. To bring them to that point of understanding their helplessness in God's hands and their hopelessness of ever meeting his standard and then point them to this unnamed man. You who are helpless in God's hands and hopeless of meeting his standard I present to you this unnamed man. He is the one person who has met the standard that God requires. He has upheld the glory of God to the same degree that God upholds his own glory because he himself is God the second person and man. At the same time. And he is the only one who will pass judgment on that fixed 
day. He's the only one. Do you want to know why this church exists? Why does this little church exist on this little piece of land? In this little corner of the world. The reason that we exist is to continually speak into the world that this unnamed man, his name is Jesus. And his merits, his radiant righteousness is available for free to anyone who will claim them as their own. And that on that fixed day, you may be judged based on his merits instead of your own. So that on that fixed day, you may experience a favorable judgment by God. And it's the only way. We receive his merits by faith. There's nothing you have to do externally. We receive his merits and his righteousness simply by believing that these things are so. And that Jesus really does pardon and give his righteousness to everyone who goes to him asking to be saved. That's the Christian faith. That's the Christian message that Jesus has done all the work to please God. And we have life only through belief in his name. We see here also that God has made these things sure and given confirmation to the truth of these things by raising this man from the dead. That's the sign. That's the sign that humanity has been given forever that these things are so. Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's the assurance. Is that not good enough for you? Are you skeptical of the resurrection? Let me just tell you that there's no sign that God could give to man which would not result in skepticism. Human history has proven there's no wonder God could work. There's no sign that he could give us that humans would not be skeptical about. When Jesus himself did miracles and worked wonders, his enemies attributed those things to Satan. And if the same thing were to happen today, if the same signs and wonders were to be done today, that's what humans would attribute them to. So God did the one thing that Satan would never do. As the sign to us that these things are so, God did the one thing that Satan would never do and can't do. He gave life. He defeated death. Death is the enemy of God. Death is Satan's closest ally. 
And this God overthrew, as only God can do, as the sign that these things are so. Only God is the giver of breath and the giver of life. And that's the sign that he gave. Isn't that wonderful? And so we know these things must be so. And on the basis of the truth of these things, not by me, but by God, you are commanded to give up your idols and repent and turn to the one true God. That's Paul's third point. God commands you to repent. That's a church word. That's a Bible word. In simple terms, it means that you agree with God that he's right and you are wrong. That you've been wrong all your life and that he's been right for all of your life. You really are a sinner. He really is holy and true. You really are evil and wrong. And you turn from sin and self to the light of the one true God in belief. In the one upon whom God has set his seal his very own son. You've got to entrust yourself to Jesus. Paul's been a lot more understated than I have. I've been a little bit emotional. Paul's pretty understated. There's no hint of emotion in his presentation, is there? He's very matter-of-fact. No pleading from Paul. There might have been, but that's not recorded. He might have said these things with emotion. There's nothing here to suggest that. It's a pretty understated appeal. It's a varied response. There's mocking. There's what we could call deferment. Some people said, we're willing to listen to you again about this. And there's belief. There's mocking, there's deferment, and there's belief. And Paul, according to verse 33, went out from their midst. It was over. As unbelievable as Paul's message was that day, this message about an unnamed God who will judge on a, an unknown day by an unnamed man, as unbelievable as that message was, we have to ask this question. What's more unbelievable, the message that Paul preached that day or the fact that he was the one preaching it? Saul of Tarsus the fierce opponent of the church, Saul the murderer, Saul the Pharisee. He's the one. God takes people who have done everything to not deserve a role in his service, much less a prominent role, and he puts the gospel in their mouths and says, 
Go tell your fellow sinners the gospel message. God takes horribly unqualified people, moral failures like Saul, moral failures like me, and says, go tell your fellow sinners about the reality of sin and the beauty of Jesus. And that's what happened on this day in Athens. And that's what happened today in this room. And so without any further pleading, without any more emotional appeal, or stirring up any of your emotions at all, I simply leave you with the plain statement of the eternal God that your sin has been declared and that a day has been fixed and that a man has been appointed and that everyone who believes in the name of the holy, merciful, wonderful, risen Jesus Christ will be saved. Thank you for telling us, Father. You didn't have to. You didn't have to do any of it. You didn't have to save, but that's your plan. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of declaring these things. It's a joy and reward just to speak the words. Jesus is wonderful. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen.